There's always been something that was more interesting to me about I disagree as opposed to I agree. I think that life is more interesting if we can each add our own little piece to the puzzle. For me, maybe I'm adding humor to a conversation. This is a conversation worth having because we care so much about these cards. When I find that resource that speaks that, that deeper level of strategy, there's like this awakening of interest in me. And I want to bring that to other people with magic. Hello, what is up everyone and welcome to another episode of Humans of Magic, the podcast that gets deep inside the minds of your favorite Magic the Gathering personalities. I'm your host, James Sue. This week's guest is Matt Sperling. It would not be an understatement to say that Matt Sperling is a divisive figure. He is a humorist, contrarian, and of course, one of the best magic players in the world. But his opinions have sometimes rubbed people the wrong way. By his own description, Matt is a jack-of-all-trades when it comes to magic. He's been writing articles for more than 15 years. He has a new video series on YouTube, which we will talk about in the interview. And he is also a member of the Rivals League and a Mythic Championship finalist in 2019. He can also often be found providing his opinions on Twitter and, well, actually, I would say it's mostly Twitter. Matt tries to do a lot of things as well and tries to keep it fun. At the end of the day, he calls himself a hobbyist. Now, why am I telling all this before we get into the interview? It's because I always had a lot of respect for Matt. I think that no comedian or humorist can be 100% and be on all the time in their jokes. But one of the things that I appreciate most about Matt is that he makes you think. The humor is a mechanism to get you more involved and get you thinking about topics in the magic community, which we don't often get to have good conversations about. And so I felt it was very important to interview Matt for Humans of Magic. I've always been a fan. You may feel the same or you may feel differently. But the fact is, this is what the podcast is all about. It's about sharing. It's about getting inside the minds of others in the game and really hearing what they have to say. If nothing else, I hope you listen to this interview with an open mind. That's all I ask. Now, first things first, let's give a shout out to our sponsors, the people who make this podcast happen. Humans and Magic is sponsored by ChannelFireball.com. I usually talk about Channel Fireball in terms of being the retail store that provides all of the great magic singles and product that you can ever find under the sun. And that is largely true, and that does not change. But I also want to use this opportunity to talk about the wonderful strategy articles they have. I got into competitive magic over a decade ago, and my format of choice to date has been Legacy. And lately, Channel Fireball has just been doing some great work on Legacy strategy content. One of the greatest players ever, Reed Duke, just streamed the Legacy Challenge on Magic Online last weekend. He's also been writing a ton of great content on ChannelFireball.com, including how to get into the Legacy format. There's also Peter Vanderham, who is a Legacy specialist of sorts and quite a gifted mathematician. He just wrote an excellent Grixis Breach Delver primer on Channel Fireball, in which you can learn about the hottest new combo deck with a Delver 
archetype, a two-in-one shell, if you will. There's some really in-depth strategic content. And I, as someone who loves legacy, I'm just super excited to read and see all this content on Channel Fireball. They really do care about all the formats. Channel Fireball just has you covered. There's just a lot of great strategic articles that really help you take your game to the next level. All of the content is free, so just head on over there and have a look. The second sponsor is near and dear to my heart. It is my own company, Cardboard Live. Cardboard Live provides excellent ways to tell your stories while you're streaming and really take your streaming to the next level, whether you're doing tabletop streaming, arena, or any magic streaming, basically. Those of you who have followed Hasbro's latest quarterly earnings report may have seen that magic streaming and magic viewing on Twitch is at an all-time high. And at Cardboard Live, we're super honored to be part of this wave. We have been helping streamers tell stories. We have also been helping run the magic events at the highest levels like MTG Worlds, the World Championships that just happened. Uh, shout out to Paulo Vitor for winning world, the World Championships. There's a lot of good stuff happening with Cardboard Live. Definitely give the Cardboard Live Twitter account a follow. And if you are an arena streamer or a Magic Online streamer, let's definitely get in touch. You can send an email request to james at cardboard.live. That's my email account. And uh, we'll, get you, we'll get you started. We'll get you using Cardboard Live. It's completely free. And we're just really passionate about helping you tell your story, take your stream to the next level. That's what it's all about. And that's what... My co-founder, Wilson, and I are trying to do with Cardboard Live. Another shout-out goes to my man, Kupla. Kupla, who is an amazingly gifted musician. He helps supply all of the great music that you hear on this Humans of Magic podcast. You can check his stuff out on SoundCloud and Spotify, wherever music is found. And just basically give him a follow on Twitter, Kupla Sound. That's K-U-P-L-A-S-O-U-N-D. Some really chill vibes for anything you want to do. All kinds of good stuff. It's just music for your life. Last but not least, I want to plug the Humans of Magic website, humansofmagic.com. If you go to humansofmagic.com, you can join my mailing list. You can get a preview. You can get three complete previews of the Humans of Magic book, which has been out since last year. And you can basically be notified of all the new episodes that come out for Humans of Magic. So I would really appreciate it if you could just head on over there to humansofmagic.com and join the mailing list, won't you? I would really appreciate it if you could. Thank you. Alrighty, all the preamble out of the way. Let's get into it. Here's Humans of Magic with Matt Spurling. Hello, Matt. How are you today? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. I understand that you're in LA, right? Based on your Skype handle and maybe also what I've heard about you over the years. No, I so I grew up in LA and kind of born and raised Southern California. I'm actually up in the Bay Area now, so I'm this taking this call from my home in San Francisco. Very nice. Very nice. And how are things over there for you? How have things been for you this week? Good. You know, it's... Um, 
it's busy, but I like busy and um, with work and, and magic. And I'm sure we'll get into some of this, but no, that, that's that's how it's been recently with this Rivals League stuff. Trying to prepare actually for a couple tournaments coming up, Reno, a Mythic Point Challenge online. It's been fun, um, so I'm, I'm having a good time with it. I know you've been at Magic for a very long time, but how many hours on average do you spend on preparation leading up to a big event or a PT? So over the years, it's varied quite a bit. Nowadays, I'm actually able to squeeze in a decent amount of testing. I'm probably playing you know, a couple hours of Magic a day. I think a lot of times after work, I'm able to... Like my wife's been into reading a lot of fiction, and so she, she's reading. I'm on the laptop playing Magic. It's kind of a... We can relax together that way, and so able to squeeze it in. That's a really good arrangement you have with your wife because I, <laughs> yeah, I often sure. find when I'm playing Magic, I just can't even process anything else that's going on. I'm just so, maybe because I'm so bad, I'm just so focused on what's happening, and it's at the, unfortunately, at the exclusion of other things or other people, you know? Oh, I, I get that way too, no question. Um, but it's, but yeah, my wife's been, I mean, amazingly supportive with, hey, you've got your hobby. I'm not into, you know, she's not into it, but she's got her stuff. Um, and it's just great that way. Yeah. So I, I'm very fortunate that way. And that's, that's one of the, um, that's some of the glue that keeps this whole thing together is her support and flexibility with that kind of thing. That's awesome. And are you much of a reader yourself? Um, uh, I'm not like a voracious reader, but you know, I read a little bit, um, as far as fiction. I actually, it's kind of like, you know, it's weird. It's kind of like, magic comes and go ups and downs and actually there's probably a bit of a correlation where the less magic I'm playing the more likely I am to you know pick up a book instead of reading articles listening to magic podcasts so it's one of those things where there's only so many hours in the day and and recently I haven't been reading a whole lot for sure and I understand that your line of work or your day job is that of a lawyer is that right yeah I'm a corporate lawyer for a tech company here in the bay area Ah, so it does make sense to be <laughs> where you are right now, location-wise. For sure. Matt, the thing that really... Okay, I'm just going to be forthright about it. I've always been a fan of yours. I've been a fan of your content, your work, whether it's your writing or your recent video series. But more than anything, I really enjoy sort of your style, <laughs> your, your stylings online. You've described your online persuasion or personality is that of a contrarian. Now, a contrarian, based on what I know, is someone who is typically goes against the popular opinion, in this case, popular opinions of magic. Can you talk a bit about why you are a magic contrarian and what is the magic popular opinion right now that you are contrary to? Yeah, there's always been something that was more interesting to me about I disagree as opposed to I agree. And it's not about right or wrong, just my personal disposition. If you say, if someone expresses an opinion, you say, I agree, you kind of move on or, okay, where do you go from there? But if you say, I disagree, there's a lot you can do to then unpack, well, who's right? Who's wrong? Why you dis- if, it's, if it's not about objective reality, but if it's about preferences, okay, why did the person feel that way? You know, could I, would I be able to maybe convince them, persuade them? And obviously, like, you know, as a lawyer, persuasive argument and writing is, you know, this all kind of, it's obvious why I'm interested in that stuff. Once you know I'm interested in some of it, okay, that's why he chose that career, perhaps, or whatever. And and it's true. I mean, that's just how I like to think about things. And playing devil's advocate or being contrarian, like, I think it's really valuable to be able to explain why you feel a certain way on a certain topic 
and to, even if you don't feel that way, try to come up with an argument for that side of the argument. I, I don't know. I just, I really value it. I think it helps you sharpen the way you think about things. If you can come at it from multiple angles, if you can create in your mind a worthy opponent on the other side of an argument in a devil's advocate type of sense, then I think you do strengthen your position ultimately. All this stuff is why I like being contrarian. I like playing devil's advocate. And I like also keeping things interesting. And again, I started this rant by saying it's more interesting to me to disagree in a lot of contexts. And really keeping things interesting is a lot of what it means to like have this type of you know, sarcastic, bent, or contrarian, or trolling, have, you know, different shades of the same kind of thing. I try, Trolling has taken on a different kind of character, but I try to stay away from the toxic aspect of it. When I was younger, I was much more likely to, to veer into that toxic part of it. Now I'm just more about, hey, let's have an interesting conversation. That's really interesting, because for me, there's no negative connotation as pertains to the concept of trolling. Trolling, maybe it's just to me, in the purest sense of the way, is a way to use humor or to use the ridiculousness of a situation to kind of point at something or to shed light on it in a in a kind of, I don't really care, but in, in a sense, I really do sort of way. So I, I, I know that we, we sort of talk about the difference between contrarian to troll. And it sounds like your your stance or your, your reaction or your opinions on things have evolved over the years. Is that right? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think that definition of trolling that you just espouse, I mean, sure, I would, I would sign up for that. I just want to de-risk the, the possibility that someone hears that and thinks that trolling in the sense that my objective is to make someone else upset. Mm. And, and that's, that's not the case. Often, yeah. You know, that's often the, the, the kind of something that people imply with trolling and, like I said, I mean, I've been, you know, I look, I've been in that mindset plenty of times in the, over the course of my life. I think I try not to do it now. I think it's, there's enough of that on the internet, but also like, it's just kind of an, it, it's, it tends to be kind of an immature. It comes from insecurity. It's kind it's almost like a form of bullying. And I, and I don't think that, I don't think that's gonna be a stretch for people to imagine that trolling in, in certain forms can be, is a, is a form of bullying. And, you know, I just, I don't want to be in that space anymore like I used to again you know 10 15 years ago certainly uh, you know I spent some time in that kind of space th where I felt bullied in some parts of my life like at school and then I would kind of take it out on someone it's like almost like a cycle of bullying right I would kind of feel like an outcast at school and then I would show up to the card shop and kind of make other people feel that way because they weren't as good at playing cards or they weren't as good at arguing or whatever I was up to back then um, and so I just, I think there's just been a, there's been a maturing process for me that's led me away from that toxic aspect of kind of contrarianism or trolling or whatever you want to call it and towards just more, you know, let's have an interesting conversation and part of it being an interesting conversation, disagreeing. And mm -hmm. I'm, I'm more in that space now. Got it. Do you, do you feel like magic discourse is very much about what a popular opinion is and people that people generally don't disagree on things? Well, you know, a lot of what, what communication shows up and, and what it feels like is dependent on the forum that the communication is happening in. I think if you show up to a tournament and start talking to people, 
it's a lot feels a lot different than what it does to log on to Twitter and see what people are tweeting about. So I think I mean a lot of what's happening right now is just a byproduct of these platforms that we're engaging on, and you know the YouTube comment section on Magic videos sometimes kind of feels like a YouTube comment section, and the Magic Twitter exchanges they feel like Twitter exchanges, and I don't know that it's super specific to our community. There's just some patterns that happen on these platforms. So what's an example on Twitter? You know the most extreme forms of two sides of an issue those getting shared, right? So people sharing the most extreme thing on the other side and going, look, look how ridiculous this is. Can you believe it? And then, so this whole thing, that these things that just bounce, things that bounce off the walls that way, but like the reasonable people in the middle, which might even be most people, they don't, their take kind of is comes and goes. And, you know, to the, to an extent I've, I'm, I'm aware of this and I've certainly, you know, <laughs> rode that wave in a sense, right? I mean, I understand some of the things that I tweet or some of the things, way I frame things in an article. Sometimes it does skew that way. So I'm not, this is not me saying I'm above this or, or different. It's the opposite. I'm saying, hey, when we, we all go to these platforms, we all fall into these patterns. We all encounter things that are filtered based on these things. But at the end of the day, I think it actually has less to do with our community specifically and more to do with just what these platforms do and issues with these platforms in general. That totally makes sense. I have often felt that nuance is just a lost art these days where, because I'm kind of the old man on the hill thinking about how I was talking to my friends about certain things five, 10 years ago versus now where everything is uh, extremely polarized, but also just, you know, you have to, you have to come out firing with like a super hot take to even get notice. And it just becomes kind of a a game, and I'm not saying that I'm I'm sick of it, <laughs> no pun intended, or or I'm I, I dislike it. I understand that's just sort of the the parameters of the platform. You know, it's just different now. And I yeah, and I think it's I try to maintain a, a perspective with it. Let's take an, an issue. I don't know. Someone does something at a tournament. Let's just make it up so it's totally fictional. Someone spills a bottle of water and it goes on someone's lap, and and people say okay, this thing happened and this person was kicked out of the tournament hall because someone said it was intentional. Let's imagine that that, that that happened. You might end up with 20 people that tweet, okay, it sounds like there's probably misunderstanding, but it's not a big deal. One person that says this person should be banned for life, this is assault, mm -hmm. and another person saying there's absolutely no issue with that, even if it was intentional. So on the other end of the extreme. So then that's 22 opinions Two of them seem kind of extreme and, and maybe even unreasonable. 20 of them seem reasonable. Which ones do you think are going to get you know, retweeted 20 times? Or, or nowadays, especially quote tweeted and you know, dunked on. And, hey, look, up, this is ridiculous. This is outrageous. Well, you and I both know the two tweets that are going to go around the world, so to speak, or around our little world, if it's a magic community type of tweet, are those extreme ones. But I try to keep perspective that it's still, at the end of the day, in this scenario, there would still be 20 people with a reasonable opinion on this. But you end up arguing around these extreme versions. So, yeah, it, 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 it feels that way a lot. And look, I've tried to quit Twitter. I mean, I've literally said this is not making me happier when I look at it than when I don't look at it. I mean, I, and I end up going back to it partly because I think engaging with the community there's a lot of positives to it, and I want to share my content. If I'm working on a video, I want folks to see it and appreciate it because that's why I'm doing it, right? It's not my job. That's why I'm doing it. Mm -hmm. And so I want to be on Twitter for those reasons, but I've unfollowed a lot of accounts that where it's just like the whole 
let's blow up um, these extreme, I don't know, everything I just talked about, I'm trying to kind of get away from that a little bit, um, but I fall into the same patterns as everyone else. So anyways, I'm just, I'm trying to talk through kind of how I think about the platform, but I think it's more about the platform than about the community. Yeah, and the truth is, there is definitely a lot of value to platforms like this because I I can tell from your interactions with folks on Twitter is like you have some friends on Twitter, like some actual friends that you know in real life, and it's fun to to talk to them. and And for me, I feel the same as well. But every once in a while, you you have sort of these these um, <laughs> these folks just sort of like between the lines trying to get in the middle of conversations, right? Between conversations and 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 it. it you know, I'm sure you've had this happen to you, right? You're just talking to Luis or somebody that you actually know over Twitter, and then you just have like five other people just sort of come up and say something like "You're wrong, Matt," or "You're" or, or something like that's not relevant to the topic. It's just it's just funny. It's just like a a wild west, you know? Yeah, you gotta. I mean, you gotta take the good with the bad. I think if I'm on the platform in order to engage with folks and get more eyeballs on my content. I can't really, you know, complain too much that my conversations aren't private. And at the end of the day, if I want to talk to LSV, I mean, I know how to message Luis, right? So I think, yeah, I try to like, just, just okay, I don't need to respond further if I'm not finding it productive, but I try not to get too bent out of shape that folks are chiming in with something that I might not feel is kind of derailing or something. I, again, I think not always successful, certainly not, not 100% successful with this. But what I try to do is keep some perspective about, you know, just folks are trying to engage with something. Yeah, they may not know, they may not have been playing for as long as Luis and I have been playing. So they may have a take that sounds kind of like uninformed or something. But, okay, maybe that's something I don't need to respond to. Um, and So I'm trying to kind of just, you know, let that stuff happen. And maybe someone else wants to chime in and say, hey, actually, I don't, you know, whatever. So I've, I've muted plenty of threads that go that direction. Mm-hmm. trying to find those kind of healthy patterns of engagement for me. Some of that is like, let's just mute and move on, that kind of thing. Um, so it's a work in progress. Yeah. And Matt, I do want to, and I'm sorry if I've derailed this conversation already a little bit, that's definitely on me, but I, I do want to go into a little bit of your personality as it, as it relates to being a contrarian. Now, you have said that it is important to disagree and it also is important to think about like what if this argument is wrong what if this argument is right so can you trace that back to maybe your own life like uh, you had mentioned you know you know maybe taking things out of the lgs but we're not talking about trolling or bullying we're talking about contrarianism so yeah um can you trace that back to how it started for you sure i think i can i mean i was very much what what Chris Arnotti would call a front row, is an author I like, a front row student, a front part of the front row where I'm in class and like, I don't know, I just want the teacher to respect me, think I'm smart. I want adults to think that I'm, that I'm you know, smarter than, than I should be at my age or whatever. And, you know, that was a way for me to get attention and get kind of some some degree of acceptance. And so I think coming up, part of all this intellectual intellectualism that kind of you know has a lot to do with how I find value in things and how I engage with things has its roots in that and kind of proving yourself okay well I could never I was never the kid that could run the fastest or jump the highest but there were a few classes where I might have been the smartest kid in the room right that kind of thing so we all kind of 
I think gravitate towards things where we feel like, okay, this is this is me, this is my lane, this is where I belong. And again, for me, it wasn't a running lane or a swimming lane. It was this intellectual kind of lane of proving myself. And I think the contrarianism comes out of that. Because again, if a teacher says, you know, here's what I think this chapter meant, you know, if I say I agree, then that, again, we were, okay, let's, that's it. But if I say, you know what, I, I want to push back on that. I want to go, I want to understand better and let me let me use a disagreement as a way in so kind of the disagreements and the contrarianism is to me it's a door to a conversation it's a door to being able to prove myself on some kind of on that psychological level of you know this is a big this is all bound up with how I think about my worth on some level and that's just kind of how I'm wired and so I think those that contrarianism comes naturally out of all that when you first started behaving this way in the public sphere whether it's a classroom or elsewhere how did others respond to this yeah it was interesting I mean I, I was actually not I was never a straight-a student I was a poor student and some you know I was kind of a one of the, the I was a bored in school kid one of those kids that were like the homework just wasn't interesting to me I was trying to read ahead and get to the next chapter and all this stuff so a lot of the reaction was just trying to you know Teachers trying to put me into, you know, get me to play by their rules and sit still. And, you know, I was a little bit hyperactive and that whole thing. So I think I just, you know, the reaction in general was, I, but at the end of the day, I always knew when I was getting someone's respect and attention in terms of, okay, this is a kid I can give more advanced content to. This is someone I can have a discussion with after class. And so adults, I think, would engage with me in different ways based on what they were trying to get to. But I knew that this was something that I was good at, coming up with arguments, persuasive writing, thinking about things in a way that the other kids are just not along. And I'm going, wait a minute, let's, what about that? And, and someone say, oh, yeah, that, that is actually an interesting wrinkle. So I think the reaction was attention, which was really what I was looking for. And then that attention took different forms. But at the end of the day, I was happy just to kind of again, be in the front row, getting some attention that is must have been on some level what I was craving. The thing that I love about what you do now in terms of your, your online persona or personality is that you use a lot of humor. But back in the day when you were in that class, would you consider yourself to be a class clown? Did you make people laugh? Like how, how did that work exactly? Or did you just kind of keep it to yourself and then sort of develop that voice over time? I know it's a very complicated question but I just wanted to kind of get into that a little bit yeah I was I was definitely sort of a class clown I, mean, I definitely you I definitely use humor in all the ways we think about using humor whether it's to deflect something whether it's to again open a door and to a conversation I mean I use humor all those ways and and, 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 I, and bullying too, name calling I mean, that's what a lot of Growing up, for me, at least where I grew up, in the era I grew up, I mean, there was a lot of the name-calling and joking that wasn't always what we'd call appropriate, but that's how we interacted. That's how we kind of proved ourselves in the playground. And again, I knew I, well, I wasn't going to be someone that could, that I wasn't going to punch you in the face if I got upset, but maybe I'd tell, a, you know, some joke, um, that kind of thing. So I think humor was totally bound up in the defense mechanisms of growing up awkward and nervous and that kind of thing. And the class clown... You know, yeah, you kind of, as you, as I develop socially, then that kind of did transition into, oh, well, actually, if I can be more social about it and understand what plays to what audience, there's more to this humor thing. And so that's something that I grew into and matured into where it was crude and primitive 
in, in my childhood. And so, so similar to the thing about contrarianism and trolling. It was crude and primitive and kind of rude and in your face more when I was younger. And then as I matured, I just tried to take a more mature approach and understand that, that this is one tool in your toolkit. It's something I really like. It's something I use to keep conversations interesting, to pull people in to get eyeballs onto my articles and I'll try to sneak in what I think about something through the humor. It's all of that for me. For sure. And I do think that the magic discussion or magic topics these days are often very self-serious or or they try to be, which makes the humor, at least for me, even more delightful because it, it it's very interesting when you're trying to use humor with someone who clearly does not want to be <laughs> does not want to laugh. Um, it, it's just sort of like two sides butting heads. But I, I find that immensely, I think delightful is the is the phrase I will use. But I, I don't know. Do you feel that as you're as you're using humor, you know, throughout what you do on Twitter and, and elsewhere? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You no. You you you're definitely touching on something that's really important. I think it's a really important. It's an antidote to taking yourself too seriously. And if someone else shows up with that, then they may confront you with, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and Twitter falls into this mode where, yeah, things either they quickly either get silly, get too silly or too serious. And I, I mean, I'd rather I'd rather go towards too silly, but obviously, I'd rather also try to balance things out a little bit. Um, and that's always a tightrope act. People, I, I, you know, I get comments on my content sometimes. I didn't expect it to be so serious. Mm-hmm. Or, hey, you know, this really made me laugh. And, like, I, you know, it's just kind of, we all, anyone who's creating humor but also trying to convey something in what they're doing, whether it's my passion for what I'm doing or some take I have, whatever, yeah, it, it, there's, there's these, it's a tightrope act, like I said. So how do people react to it? it? It varies, but I think, again, it's hard to be super serious and take yourself so seriously in the face of someone who's who's being light about things, unless you just t- you know take this modern stance of well you know making light of stuff in its in and of itself is inappropriate, which obviously I would I would object to. But anyways, so <laughs> this is kind of again we're talking about issues that exist in the magic community that show up in magic content, magic conversations, but that are also I mean super important big picture issues with all of our discourse outside of magic too that happens you know with how, how do we talk about the news right well there's some shows that joke about it there's some shows that are serious how do we talk about any issue now i mean i think there's i've all but i've always looked up to comedians for example folks like george carlin and others who kind of said you know what i've got my way of speaking truth to power and speaking about the truth of things and kind of you know the emperor has no clothes how do we how do I show up and talk about these kinds of issues? Well, humor is a, can be the door, a door that way. So those have always been like heroes of mine. And to the extent I do that on a microscopic, tiny scale with magic stuff, great. I found some way to do that on, on this small scale that I find fun. Absolutely. And not to really generalize, but I do feel like a lot of people, at least the way they represent themselves online, cannot seem to find the funny side of things or to or to more bluntly take a joke like why do you think that is is it just a persona in the same way that we all have our our personas is that of the self-serious uh i cannot laugh kind of person or are they just oblivious to something because i i find i find humor or or humor in general is very important for any society or any 
any group of people. So I, I just find that immensely fascinating, you know? Yeah, again, there's there's a danger in, in the generalization there, right? I think there are folks that you can engage with with the, that find the humor, and I think you can build micro-communities where you're surrounding yourself with folks that are have a similar sense of humor, so you're encountering that less. Unfortunately, I've been lucky in that way. I think a lot of the folks that I follow that we, we talk, engage with, we do share a similar sense of humor, or at least they find what I'm doing funny and, and I find the way they engage with it interesting or funny. Um, so yeah, again, and so there's a risk of like, well, maybe I'm just focusing a lot on the folks that, cause it is kind of like nails on a chalkboard when people on different levels, I'm trying to be funny. You're trying to be serious. That's grading. And so, yeah, there's a risk of like that being so salient that you forget. There are also other folks that get it. Um, so I kind of, I've kind of feel the same way what I talked about earlier where I try to just count my blessings and, if I, yes, if I tweet out a joke, there will be some folks that don't get it, that don't want to engage with this topic in that way or whatever, but I, I just have to m- make sure I see the forest for the trees that like, look, for the most part, I've got an audience for what I'm doing. That audience is never everybody, mm-hmm. but I've got an audience for what I'm writing. And if someone comments, this is the dumbest video I've ever seen, this is the stupidest article ever, there's going to be five other people that felt like this at least five other people that feel like this, okay, this was cool. This is why I, I, go, I keep coming back when I see Matt Sperling on the byline. I'm going to read that article. I'm going to watch that video. And you know, I'm, it's not going to be for everybody, but I find enough of those connections to that I don't spend, I don't lose too much sleep over the folks that aren't in on the joke. Yeah, I think there's different levels to it, but I think the thing that makes good content, and we'll get into this in a, in a bit too, is that the reason why I enjoy your content is that it there's a level of... Uh, analysis or intelligence behind it i guess to say it very bluntly like like it's clear that you've thought through certain things like even in some of the jokes like okay there's actually a punchline it's not just hey i'm funny and you're stupid or something like that like there there seems to be a bit of intelligence or planning or pre-planning behind it which is what i what i appreciate whereas a lot of feedback on twitter or platform on or certain platforms is is very like one level like it's just like i hate you and i hate this and and but you're saying i hate this because or or i like this because have you thought of it this way yeah there's definitely right i mean i think you, you can tell in what i'm doing that i care about is this interesting and if i'm writing some if, and if i'm writing with humor in mind is this funny um and i care about those things and i think that like yeah, that's just like a, it's a really bright guiding light for a lot of my stuff that keeps it out of just, yeah, just saying I hate this period or even just like, you know, I'd always I my one of my pet peeves is like just when people just their comment is just like this or whatever, like which just all they're doing is saying I agree again. So this is like, I don't know, maybe it's just the way I'm wired. I'm kind of allergic to this whole I agree. Let's move on kind of thing for better or worse. I think that life is more interesting if we can each add each add our own little piece to the puzzle. For me, maybe I'm adding humor to a conversation. Maybe I'm maybe and I'm not always it's not I'm not always tweeting a joke though. Maybe I've got maybe I think I've got a take or a solution to something. I definitely if I see a problem and I think I've got a possible solution, I'm happy to share that too. That's interesting. That might be useful. I think humor is useful to people. So I'm trying to approach things that way. And with my content, I'm also trying to do stuff that I don't see other people doing. So when I see, if I see three articles treating a topic very seriously, I might be more, I'm, well, I'm not, might be, I'm, I'm, I'm more likely to take a humorous approach in what I'm doing because that's different. 
you can go click on those other links to get the to get the very serious, very important take on what the right path is. And again, I might write that if I'm trying to write it the same day and get that get my take out there. Other times, I might take a humorous approach. So yeah, you know, I think it's really interesting also as it pertains to magic or the magic community because the mainstream thought in magic has basically become let's dunk on organized play. Let's let's talk about how bad this card was designed. And I, I don't think I'm, I don't think anybody's immune to this. I'm just saying that in a world where that is the mainstream ideology or thought, and in a world where you're trying to be a contrarian to that, have you actually, this is a good, this is a question for you. Like, have you, have you actually, have you gone against the grain when it comes to this kind of stuff? Because I, yeah. you know, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's I, yeah, no, yeah. I've thought, I've thought about this question the way I would frame it and again trying to maybe just take making light of it but the way I would frame it is like what 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 do I do when everyone's sick of it <laughs> when everyone's <laughs> yeah the default mode when is everyone to be sick can of it, right yeah exactly if everybody can write the 10 things they hate about the you know throne of Eldraine or whatever cuz they get all these really powerful cards then you know but at the same time I don't again not something I lose sleep over because I'm going to be able to I think come up with something that other folks haven't thought about this way, that way, there are tweaks to it. And if anything else, it means a lot of folks have an appetite to view things in that way. Then yeah, maybe I don't need to be contrarian in the direct binary, you think X, I think opposite of X. And more, hey, maybe I can, have you thought about this way? Here's another way in which this works that way. So I think, you know, again, I contrarian is probably too simplistic a way to describe what drives me if i'm thinking about how to have an interesting conversation about something there's more than one way to do it and if everyone's got an appetite to talk about play design then maybe you know maybe we can talk about how do you fix it Mm -hmm. and i said okay well i think that they should have a mechanism for unprinting a card so like veil of summer is just it's just gone every you don't need to own one it's just gone and like you know that kind of interest you know okay maybe that's an interesting thing to think about even if it's a little bit wonky and wouldn't happen Mm -hmm. that kind of thing so i'm just again it's what's interesting what's going to be engaging what what haven't other folks said and i'll be able to identify that even if the wind's blowing in the same direction for most people yeah i believe i'm understanding what you're saying which is not it's not being the opposite for the sake of that but to really shed light on okay what are the alternative viewpoints or are there things that we haven't considered it because for me personally like i'm very big on mental models right like you're you're trying to see the world in a certain way and i think maybe sometimes we're just not seeing a certain model and and that's okay but just really allowing for that aspect as opposed to just saying i'm absolutely right and this is exactly why um everybody at wizards is an idiot and can't design cards like there's there's got to be some something that it maybe is a little bit more uh productive in terms of discussion that comes from that right yeah, and I and I actually have, you know, I do sometimes feel guilty about the all the hard work people do designing the cards and how hard a job they have. Like, mm-hmm. I don't think I could, I don't think if I joined play design tomorrow, I'm not sure that things would get better and not worse. I mean, it's just a really hard job mm-hmm. to try to predict the future state of a metagame when metagames are so complex that we still, with all the information we have, there's still decks that come out after a pro tour. None of the pros found it. I mean. It's just so complicated figuring it out. Now, I sometimes feel guilty. Was I too hard on these folks? Or I'll run into, you know, I run into people at, at events. And I mean, and these are the folks that design the cards. And I'll, obviously, I'll joke and make light of it, give them a hard time. Mm-hmm. At one tournament, I told someone on Play Design, oh, what do you think of the new set? This is Modern Horizons. What do you think of Modern <laughs> Horizons? I assume Play Design hasn't seen it based yeah. on what the cards look like. You know, that kind of just, 
mm-hmm. making a joke out of it. Um, but sometimes I do feel like, look, this is, I'm, you know, I'm, yeah. I don't want to just be dumping on someone's hard work all the time. However, <laughs> why do I end up still writing that article? It's because this is something that there's so many people love it so mm-hmm. much. It is important. We all care about it. That's why we're talking about it, right? Yeah, we care about it. There's no... And unfortunately, if you're going to design cards for this game that we love, that you know so many people play, then those cards are going to get released into the wild and people are going to feel the way they feel about them. So again, those I feel that guilt creep in but at the end of the day i know this is a conversation worth having because we care because we care so much about these cards for sure now matt just from talking to you now i feel like you've really evolved over the years you know in terms of how you approach things but i do want to talk a bit about the sick of it series i don't actually know is the series retired right now or is it just on hiatus like how how does that work exactly no, it's it, it, it's still active, and I, I try to hit one for every new set that comes out. Oh, that's out. right. You did one for Thoreau's. I do remember reading that. Yeah. You're not wrong for asking, though, because in the, in the not-too-distant past, I've missed a couple sets, and, you know, things happen. But I'm trying now to get to do one for every set, um, but I'm not, I'm not doing them, like, in between. They're hard enough to do every, you know, yeah. multiple times a year. They're, so. they're very detailed, and I wanted to ask, what was the original origin story of the Sick of It series? Because it goes back years, right? Maybe even decades. Yeah, I mean, the definitely like the roots of it definitely go back decades. The Sick of It series itself is, yeah, probably is, is in the years, I think, not the decades. But whatever, whatever you call it, it comes from the place of everybody's attention is on the new cards when there's new cards that come out the new decisions being made by the organized play team, if there's new decisions coming out, everyone's attention's focused on this thing. That becomes a potential source of comedy. And I don't see a lot of other people doing that kind of thing. So it's both, it's content that is not going to be repetitive about the new set. That's not easy. If you've ever tried to create content about a new set, it's not easy to be saying something that 10 other people aren't also saying. It's, it's always like card previews and glowing things like, this card is amazing. It's going to go into this deck like this, right? It's, it well, oh, it, fit, it fits know, the content publishing model of Magic, basically. No question. There's a lot of that. that that's a really crowded marketplace for that kind of opinion about, here's how, the, here's how to use the new card. Here's what, I'm, here's what I think this new card is going to be worth. I mean, there's like... A pretty, you know, there's a few different lanes, you know, finance, the what, what's mm-hmm. good, limited analysis, constructed, but like that's not a very broad range of discussion, and I always look at that kind of thing, and I, I'm not gonna say, hey, let me go, not always, let me go try to do this this thing better, but if I can do something different that brings a humor to it, I don't know. For me, it was just it came together when I enjoyed writing them. People seem to enjoy reading them, even when I was only doing it for my friends. And I would do, I would write jokes about cards and things, and, and send them to f- my friends, and they would laugh. And then my audience, and then I started doing that with more people, and so it kind of grew out of that. But then once it, once it's like, okay, I'm doing something different. People seem to enjoy it. Again, not everybody, but enough people seem to enjoy it. The articles do well. Great. How do I kind of brand this in a way that lets me double down on it in the coming? articles and link things together so the sick of it just came up as okay this is just some simple kind of branding to tie together to signal this is okay this is when matt's going to offer that kind of humorous take on the new set so anyways things get when things grab everyone's attention 
someone someone can then joke about that. That's just like a basic like this is how comedy works, comedy one on one type of thing. Mm-hmm. And that's it's my approach is sometimes just that simple. Yeah, it does sort of subvert the self serious nature of you know here's a new set that's come out. We put hundreds thousands of hours into the design this is perfect please love these cards that we're giving to you that you're (laughs) unwrapping from the booster packs and you know it it does sort of invert that a little bit and that's certainly what i what i enjoy but my question here is have you got any feedback from wizards folks like who are in design who may have happened to read some of these things yeah i think there's been times where it's gotten a little bit tense from time to time. There's been times when if you search the name of a set on Google, like the second or third link is to like sick of it. Someone just like kind of bashing it in a way. If you if you were to read it, in, you know, if you were to read it uncharitably or without understanding that there's humor to it. Yeah. Maybe someone, maybe, I mean, look, I mean, sometimes people are going to read this. Yeah, stuff. it's hard to read tone or someone has never heard of Matt Sperling to go on that link. They're like, <laughs> they're reading it, right? Yeah, or English isn't their first language. I mean, you know, humor is humor. There's a cultural and a lang- and a linguistic component to humor that's not always going to translate. Someone, there's, it's absolutely possible. Someone from Estonia picks up that article. I mean, they read enough English to know what the words mean, but that all the humor and tone that's just not going to work. And so that's and so I know I suspect that folks of Wizards have been a little nervous about that. I've been a little nervous. My editor and publisher, Channel Fireball, they're nervous, and and, and I also they don't print everything I write. So they've been really really great creating a space where I can do, but I can't do whatever I want. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I'll put a joke in an article I know they're not going to print, but if I can make my editor laugh and take it out, then whatever, it's good mm-hmm. enough for me. Um, <laughs> so they, they, yeah, those things come up, um, and. Yeah, the whole it there's now with I'm now in the Rivals League. I'm literally in a different kind of relationship with the company. It's really interesting. I mean, they published they published the rules for the or someone published, I don't know if it was them, but you know, there's the rules that are now publicly known for the Magic Pro League and the Rivals League. It includes like that you won't disparage mm-hmm. Wizards of the Coast. You won't see those you know, so, so who knows what that line is, but <laughs> Yeah. It was so something about stuff, not yeah. wearing shorts on, on camera or something too, right? Yeah, that, that's part of it. And then there's this whole thing about disparagement. So, you know, yeah, my relationship with those folks evolves over time. But overall, they've been super fair and understanding of what I'm trying to do. When I talk to people on that side of the fence, for the most part, I mean, they, they kind of understand this is something that it's not doing it to try to have a negative impact. It's just a kind of a humorous attempt. So I'm sure people there have a range of opinions on it, but I, it has, I haven't gotten a lot of like direct, Hey, we want to make this go away. At least hasn't, hasn't hit me. I find that super fascinating. And I wonder if it's because of your personal relationships, maybe some of them actually being good with uh, folks over there, because please understand what I'm about to say. I'm not trying to conflate you with another content creator, but the biggest MTG YouTuber is effectively blacklisted by Wizards of the Coast, right? They don't acknowledge him. They don't talk about any of his videos uh, because he is very critical. And I think rightfully so about what are the good and bad of these new products that are coming out. He calls a spade a spade. And I think in a way you do that as well, but you maybe do it with more humor. So I'm I'm trying to break it down. Like, you know, I, I, I can tell that you're not blacklisted. So is that because you use these techniques? Is it because of your status as a player or standing with certain people? Like, why do you think it is that you're able to operate in the sphere, whereas maybe other folks are not able to in the same way? 
Yeah, I'm not blacklisted. I mean, I don't think I'm on there. I don't think I'm whitelisted either. Like, I, <laughs> yeah. I have a pretty big, I have a pretty big readership and following for someone who's never gotten like a here's your preview card kind of thing, which is fine. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I don't get those, or yeah. um, I've never gotten a special invite to anything, which is fine. Like, I, I, well, they probably don't so want to give you a preview card anyway because you'll probably make fun of it. So, so again, so I interpret, I interpret this as. I've got my fans and I've got my people who are less thrilled about what I'm up to. But yes, the fact that I've got some fans, some of them folks that I've known almost my whole life that work at Wizards that I came up with. I've been playing Magic for 26 years or whatever it is. So that's part of it. So I've got maybe I got some people championing me in those tough closed door meetings. I'll never know, or at least I don't know right now. I, I imagine that's the case. And so when if someone says, if someone were to propose, let's blacklist this person. I think I've got some folks that would push back on that. And then the other thing is like, yeah, I think it is. It's just it is different to be joking about the cards than it is to be, you know, simply bad mouthing them in a serious tone. So I don't know. I can't speak to what's going on with the other YouTube. Cause I don't even know that content. I'm not up on that, but. I know for me, I think I've just got some folks that understand what I'm trying to do and or know me personally, and probably folks in both those camps. Yeah. So how has the Sick of It series evolved? Like, do you do you feel that you're the same Matt that's writing, sitting down to write these set reviews? Or has it changed in terms of its tone or presentation from when you first started? Yeah, it's definitely changed. I think it, it used to be a little bit more of the kind of the cheap low-hanging fruit. I mean, like puns and stuff used to make it in there more often. Sometimes a pun is funny and it still makes it in there. But I try to go... I guess, I don't know if it's more highbrow, but I try to go for a little bit more of a, all right, let's get the commentary in there. If I if I feel like, hey, they really shouldn't be printing promos that are standard playable, that are hard to acquire, or they're only printed in foil, I want to mention that not and not have like a pun about it, but to say, like, this is off, and then maybe there's a joke in there or whatever, but... I don't know. It has evolved, and I think I'm writing from a slightly different perspective. Um, that's maybe mixing in a little bit of kind of humor with a take, whereas before it was more a little bit more of the cheap laughs. And again, and this is not like a value judgment. I think the cheap laughs stuff is valuable too. And and the fo- and if people that tweet out puns and I know like Luis's humor is more like that. Like that's fine. People enjoy that and they engage with that. It's just different. And for me, like I've found again, what's interesting is again my guiding light. And for me, it's it was more interesting in a repetitive context where I'm, I plan on writing this article every couple months. It's more interesting to say, okay, well, what's actually happening here? What decisions were made? How can I unpack those decisions and shine a light on that? My reader may not have realized what trade-offs were made when they decided to print that card in that format, or when they decided to make this card cost three instead of four. I might actually be illuminating that okay, this is a choice they made. At the same time, I'm poking fun at it or just you know kind of tossing dirt on it in order to make a point. That it's kind of evolved in that direction. One thing that I find super fascinating about the reaction to these set reviews that you have is that it really does create this, at least to me, this feeling that people are very revisionist in how they see things. Uh, What I mean by that is like, when you do your Sick of It series, you just say, you just shine the light. You just say, hey, these are two creatures. They have completely different like subtypes. Why is that the case? This seems ridiculous, right? Uh, To use a recent example. 
But then you actually have people come out of the woodwork who work in design that actually say, well, you know, we thought of it this way, and that's why this, uh, this, this lion is like, this is a serpent, this is not a serpent. And it just strikes me as a bit of, maybe hypocrisy is too strong, but it's just sort of like, they feel like they need to construct their worldview in a way that assures them that they are logically infallible. And that in itself is also a sort of like, I'm taking this way too seriously. Like, why don't you just say that, <laughs> that, hey, mistakes were made and, you know, I designed this with like 50 other people and maybe this slipped through the cracks. But no, it has to be like, no, we thought about this since day one. And in a way, it's actually very similar to tech where like tech companies that survive through survivorship bias, they create these elaborate stories about how they were always planning to, you know, save Africa or something. And and it, it's, it's really, I, I'm sorry, I'm probably getting all over the place, but I just find that to be, immensely fascinating it goes into the whole like shining a light through humor which really serves to sort of reveal more about certain people and certain motivations you know yeah and i and i don't i don't read into what the wizard says in the same way i don't think um when so i just have a slightly different perception of those kinds of when when they come out and say we thought about this but here's why we did this i think it's less about justifying it in a way like I'm always right. I think it's more of a, like, just they want people to know that they weren't, they weren't surprised by the trade-off, but they actively made the trade-off mm-hmm. because it, because it feels pretty, from the, just to put, you know, put yourself in their shoes. If someone says, you know, it's really stupid that they didn't realize that this card could just have, you know, this uh, this creature type instead of that creature type like uh, can you believe that you, and you start to, it's almost like it's a accusation of incompetence mm, that's true and if they and if they respond well actually we on this plane we've made a choice that these this set of creature types you know they'll have whatever the explanation is yeah. i think it's less about like they're infallible and more about like no this is like something yeah you're right you're right to raise this issue but it's an issue that we've thought about and we made a decision to go a different way. And I just read it that way. Now, yeah, I think sometimes they maybe didn't spot it. And then someone tries to justify it. I mean, that might happen too. But I think most of the time it's actually, we, we made that trade. We want you to know mm-hmm. that we made that trade off. Now, I think they could be a little bit more, they could add into maybe, and this is maybe why it kind of got you thinking the way you're thinking about it. I mean, they could probably do a little bit more to be like, we're not sure we got it right. Mm-hmm. They oftentimes kind of the period at the end of the sentence on some of their stuff is like, and that's the way it should be kind of thing, especially with like Mark Rosewater and that kind yeah. of thing. I think a lot of times his, his explaining a design decision or the design of a question on an exam mm-hmm. or, or a four, four uh, vigilance flyer, like what yeah, color is it? I think right. the, the period, the period at the end of his sentences on those topics, sometimes is a little bit too much like, and that's and that's correct mm-hmm. as opposed to but I'm not sure we got it right. So anyway, that's just yeah. That's been that's been been my perception of it. But these are complicated things, and at the end of the day, like I try to remember that it is. I mean, that's someone's job. Like, do I want someone standing over my shoulder at work, saying <laughs> you know, justify that yeah. in a way where you know not only did not only did you spot it but you got to explain your reasoning in a way that doesn't make you feel overconfident it's really tough so i i sympathize with that oh yeah yeah i th- i think through talking this over with you i feel like i'm maybe i had i need to get over my own hang-ups because maybe i have my own i mean not maybe i do have my own set of prejudices and biases towards wizards and that is causing me to 
jump to these conclusions too. And I need, I need to be able to see that in myself too. Yeah. We all, we all have our blind spots with this kind of stuff and we all kind of, we're, we're quick to forgive some people and quick to assume the worst about others. That's something that we all do. And yeah, these conversations I think are helpful to figure out. Oh, actually, okay. I see what you're saying. You know, so yeah, I like having conversations like this about wizards and, um, trying to understand where their head's at with certain decisions and, Oftentimes, I'm as critical as anybody, but at the same at the same time, again, their job is really hard, and I try to come back to that as as much as I need to. For sure. Now, Matt, I want to talk a bit about Magic: The Gathering for Advanced Players, which is your more recent YouTube series. Uh, I've mm-hmm. really enjoyed the series. It's gone. It's it's basically doing a lot of deep dives on topics that I did not think would be interesting when I click play, but I ended up most of the time watching to the end. So. Tell me about how, actually, let, let me step back one second. Who is an advanced player for Magic the Gathering? Yeah, and before I, and I, I, I got to figure out how to make these things seem more interesting before you click, but no. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, I clicked because of your player? name, but I, I stayed, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the Magic the Gathering for advanced players, it comes from the name, like the, the whole concept of who's an advanced player. It comes from old school back in the pre-internet days there would be these books teaching a subject that people would go find and you'd have it would be like your little portal into improving at this thing so there'd be a book about like card counting in blackjack or something or there'd be a book about woodworking or you know, whatever the hobby was you you name it there it wouldn't there was no internet so and so there wasn't like you could go watch this video series but instead you might find a book on the shelf called woodworking you know woodworking for advanced whatever you know or you know texas hold'em for advanced players or whatever so the advanced player is really just a mindset like the person who has kind of a basic understanding of like what's in front of them automatically in the product in the magic software let's say if you're on arena or in at the card store has that basic understanding how how do the cards work how does combat work whatever but is now looking to level up. So the, whereas the beginning player is looking to get that core understanding of, of how the pieces move and what the interactions are, the advanced player is looking to go a little deeper into the strategy, into the next level of gameplay that's going to separate the people who might be able to do well at a tournament versus the people who can just play a deck you know, and kind of and operate it and understand what's happening but don't have the strategy component. So it comes from that kind of mindset, and that's the advanced player that I'm talking about. And it kind of comes from my experience with various hobbies over the years. When I find that resource that speaks that that deeper level of strategy, there's like this awakening of interest in me, and I want to bring that to other people with magic. I see. So it it would be, can I safely say that a basic player is someone, it's about technical play and that you're trying to transcend that in your series? Yeah, it's about, I mean, it's about multiple aspects of play. I mean, you know, depending on the definition of technical play, but yeah, strategic strategic stuff. Um, it's about your competency, like competency with the basics, I think is what would then make someone ready for a series like Magic. And of course, I mean, I hope anyone can enjoy it because why not? I mean, you know, I might watch, I sometimes watch videos about, chess that are you know above my understanding of chess by a lot Mm -hmm. and i sometimes find that stuff interesting but i think the core audience for magic the gathering for advanced players is yeah someone who's got a little bit of familiarity with if not mastery over the basics 
and is looking for, okay, but what separates the best player in my region from the 15th best player? And chances, let's say, you know, if your region is, is large, if you're, you know, looking about like the greater Los Angeles area, the San Francisco Bay area, you know, a couple of places I've lived, if your region is, you know, what separates the f- best player from the 15th best player is probably not like the ap- absolute basics. It's probably a lot more than that. Like these important decisions about how to sideboard, about how to construct a deck. I mean, what deck to choose, like these are a little bit deeper stuff. And so I think like that, those are advanced topics when we're talking about what separates the best from the 15th best. Again, just to use that example. How did you learn these advanced topics on your own as you're coming up? Because I, I understand you, obviously now you're one of the, the, mo- the more accomplished Magic players in the world, but how, when you were coming up, like how, how did you get these things into your mind? Yeah, it took a long time. I mean, I was really bad for a long time. I mean, and not like, I mean, I had a, I had a good instinct for the game. I wasn't like, I shouldn't say really bad, but compared to the top players, I certainly was really bad. Um, it took a long time, and it was really my path was a chance to play with and against better players than myself. A chance to get spend a lot of time preparing for tournaments with other players who consider themselves top players, and kind of turning the corner that way. It started out; it was just the you know the the, the better players locally. I was able to get some reps with them, and and we all kind of got helped each other improve. And then as as my career progressed, that became you know literally some of the best players of all time. I've gotten a team with John Finkel, Kai Budo, whoever. Um, that that stuff. I mean, the leaps the leaps forward in my game came from two primary sources. The first, what I just mentioned, those reps high level stuff is you know you just can't replicate it because if I log on and play against random person on magic online like the level of gameplay is just not there's not enough it's not a deep enough well to get to where I'm trying to go if I'm trying to be like one of the best Mm -hmm. so having that well available great the other thing that helped me improve the game was just leaps and bounds in my own personal maturity my ability to like focus I mentioned like a little bit of like that hyperactivity or that kind of like I would actually say like impulsiveness when I was younger and less experienced at Magic. I had a real trouble not just making the first play I, I saw. And so anyway, so my own maturity and kind of my own growing amount of patience, that has been the other source of the kind of the major growth in leaps and bounds in my Magic game. I see. How young were you when you had the fire, when you had this drive to be one of the best or compete against some of the best? Yeah, so it probably was nineteen, like the late 90s, and I was born in 83. So what was I, 15, 16? Mm-hmm. When this thing, so when I was 15, 16, I really got, the, I just got bit by the bug. I want to be as good as I can be. I want to beat players. I'm super competitive. Like what, what happened? Did you grow get, up playing games and competing? Yeah. Things? I mean, I didn't. I didn't. I, mean, I kind of grew up playing Magic. I mean, specifically, but I I wasn't like a huge gamer outside of the Magic. I actually I found out about Magic through collecting sports cards or whatever. You know, the, the, yeah. the comic book and the comic book and sports card shop got these cards in. But Magic just grabbed me in a way. But I was always competitive. I mean, I, you know, family games, whatever. I was mm-hmm. always super competitive. Anything I was doing, and we used to, you know, we used to play video games and be competitive and hang out. We play Street Fighter and you know, 
play till our, play till our hands bled or whatever. Did you did you play with your siblings? Do you have siblings? Or? Yeah, yeah, older brother, younger brother, super competitive that way. Okay. And so yeah, that 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 was all there, that background, but something special, something unique to Matt. I'm not a player who plays a bunch of different games, and Magic is really has captured my attention and interest in a way that other stuff didn't. And there was so much there, so much depth. I knew. I mean, and when I started out, I couldn't afford all these cards, and so I knew I didn't even like even just like owning all the cards was like this thing I didn't know would ever happen. Like I had to own whatever cards I wanted or all, or the decks that I wanted to play. I'd be, I'd be able to afford to play. I mean, years I spent not being able to play whatever deck I wanted, and like oh, anyways, like th- so there was just this, this this whole big puzzle to it, but also there was so much achievement that you could you know achievements that you could kind of milestones you could get to achievements you could unlock whatever you want to describe it. Anyways, all that stuff super just grabbed me and hasn't let go yet for the most part. Mm-hmm. I mean, Magic is one of these games that's honestly very punishing. Like it, it's it's one of these games where you make a mistake and you almost realize right away, or you realize how much how deep the well is. Uh, you know, had 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 you been someone before Magic who's like used to winning all these games of video games and matches with your your brothers? Because I imagine that's sort of hard. There's like two kinds of people: the people who pick themselves back up. Which I think you are, but also people that are just very frustrated by the the high degree of difficulty in something. Yeah, no, I, I would have quit magic if I didn't if I thought like it was extremely, extremely frustrating and not be the best. Because like I said, I was bad for a while. But I think having that older brother who was always better than me at every mm. video game, literally, right? Yeah. Like anything. We we used to have Sonic the Hedgehog, we used to have Street Fighter, you name it, and he was just always better than me by a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it, it can't be about that. You, if I can improve and maybe maybe beat my younger brother or maybe some, be beat, play against friends and now I'm actually a little bit better because I sharpened my skill against my older brother, whatever. Yeah, I think that you, you, I have to find a different approach to it than I need to be the best or it wouldn't have functioned and I would have quit because I was young. I didn't I didn't have even like the mental horsepower to really be a top player when I was 15. I just, it, just, it wasn't going to happen. So instead, I was super happy to be like, a good player for my age or a good player in my region. Mm-hmm. And the first time you win, you top eight a pro tour qualifier. Well, that feels pretty good. Even if, even if you know somewhere, some far away, Darwin Castle doesn't care because he's winning, <laughs> he's topping actual pro tours. Like yeah. doesn't matter. You still get these local victories. Yeah. And if, if you feel good about the way you play it on the car ride home, I mean, that's, that's a cool feeling. You want to replicate that, get back to that. So having gone through this yourself and having been exposed to so many strong and maybe not so strong players, do you do you think that anyone could get to where you are with the right kind of mindset and effort? Or do you think it's just one of these things that it's only fits certain people? Yeah, it's I mean it's a really it's a really fascinating question and it comes up all the time in all kinds of aspects of life. You know, what is our great piano players, the people that were willing to sit in that chair for long enough or did people have a natural talent and those are the people that actually chose to keep doing it what's you know what is kind of natural talent what is practice what you know I think I'm from the not too controversial school of it's a mix of both and you probably to be at a certain level of play truly like a world-class player you just need both I think you need kind of a natural a natural affinity for something that makes learning easier, that raises the ceiling on what you're capable of, 
that you don't have to work so hard on these five things, so now you can work on these other two things. I think you got to have that kind of natural talent. And then, but if you don't put in the work to actually improve with those other two things, then you're not going to be an elite world-class player. I think it really does take both. I think that there's every player can improve. Every player can get to a place where they're proud of the way they play if they got the right mindset. But I don't think, I don't think any I can take anybody off the street no matter what and make that person into you know a pro tour competitor. I, I don't think it quite works like that. Do you think how good? you are as a magic player can be measured not yet um maybe if someone builds you know gets gets ai (laughs) to a certain state where you can you know figure out how you're doing but no i mean i think there's there are a lot of a lot of variants and the way we we, you know we we look at people's resumes and tournaments their tournament history use that as a yardstick there's a lot of problems with that in terms of how you know Mm -hmm. if you could actually win you could win 30 rounds over three tournaments Mm -hmm. And if you spread those out, 10 each, it doesn't look that impressive. But if you happen to win 15 in one and then five in the next, like that, all of a sudden that's a top eight. Like this stuff is all, I mean, it matters. And mm-hmm. so the measurements we do have are very imperfect. We don't have a precise measurement. But at the end of the day, it is a game and there is a winner and a loser. And so ultimately, like you can measure it, but you can't precisely measure it. I guess not until the day when we can download people's AIs and then have them like go through simulations like, okay, here are like three matches and then see like, does Matt Sperling end up winning these matches with the way he uh, makes decisions versus somebody else, right? But that we're so far from that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think like, you know, you have some in games like chess or whatever you have, you have a, a, a AI you can kind of set a dial on from one to 10, how difficult it's going to be. And someone who can beat the beat the computer playing at six is probably better than someone who can beat it at five. Like we don't have that stuff. But at the end of the day, like you know, also you don't really need to put that final point on it. Mm-hmm. We kind of you play enough of these tournaments over a period of years, and you can kind of see how things shake out. And it's probably precise enough. Okay, for so, most purposes. So this leads to my next question because I'm really curious about this because I'm quite frankly, a scrub who will never play in a pro tour ever in my life, and I've accepted it. But uh, when you sit down across from somebody, how does your intuition tell you like whether this person is good, bad, or like on your skill level or not? Because you hear about great players talk about that all the time. Like, oh, he's a great player. You know, he, he, he A, B, and C, right? But I, I don't feel that when I play Magic. So uh, I'm probably missing something in my, in my sensor. But like, how do you know that using your intuition? Yeah, I think there's different things going on that you can that if you're perceptive about noticing subconsciously or consciously, you're gonna identify stronger players. I mean, one is just like how easy and effortless is the the mechanisms of the game. So some of that starts with just even just like shuffling a deck. Like obviously, like there are some strong players that aren't good shufflers. Like you know, I think Ben Stark is not great. He's rough, a little rough on the cards. Raptor is a famous example. Uh-huh. Josh Layton, who's not like a great shuffler. But for the most part, if someone is really proficient at shuffling, they probably spent some time with you know around a, a sleeve deck of cards. They're probably a little bit more experienced. Subtle things like that. And then when, when okay, now it's time to actually play the game. Well, Magic is a game that playing technically correct means not missing obvious interactions or important interactions and so the more things that someone misses that you spot the the you know your their your evaluation of their skill level goes down um 
sometimes it's interesting. Like I, I will oftentimes watch events like with Paul Rietzel, who's my best friend and in, in magic and in general, like we'll watch together or Dave Williams as well. One of my best friends who will watch and kind of comment and like, you know, there's, we actually are explicit sometimes. Well, this person kept their seven card hand in limited and didn't do anything on the first three turns of the game. Mm-hmm. Well, you better update, you better update your likelihood that that person is making poor mulligan decisions because that's, it may be right some of the time, but it's often not going to be correct. So that kind of thing, like you're identifying, you're deducing that there must have been a mistake made along the way. Mm-hmm. Someone shows up to a tournament with a deck that's not competitive against the known best deck. Well, that's an indicator that this person's struggling to select a deck that's appropriate for that weekend because that is rarely the right thing to do. So these are, you know, just ways in which we kind of us pros talk about like, you know, who's on top of it and who's not, that kind of thing. Mhm. Is it possible that maybe somebody just had an off match or off tournament? Oh, definitely. I mean, yeah, this this comes up also when there's allegations of like cheating or, you know, is it sloppiness? Everybody's got those moments. Everybody's got I mean, not just not most people, everybody has matches where they just don't have it, boneheaded mistakes. So yeah, I mean, when I say like we got to update our, that's why you'll notice in my language, I said we got to update update our estimation that this person kept a bad hand. Mm-hmm. I didn't say like that is that person's a bad player. Oh, she's an awful player. He's a he's a mm-hmm. terrible he's a terrible at combat math. Mm-hmm. Um, she doesn't understand what matters in this matchup. Like, I I actually try not to make those kinds of like blanket statements, but rather like, uh, it's if I'm really being honest about things. Yeah, that's an indicator, but. We all make mistakes. We've all got those off days late in the rounds. I, I just made a video for my channel where you see Eli, Eli Loveman and Gabriel Nassif play a game that's probably not in an optimal way. Mm-hmm. That's a long tournament. There's so much fatigue that happens. There's so many decisions you got to make. You're under the bright lights. Mm-hmm. You're, you might have a stomach ache. I don't know. I've played a tournament. I got a stomach ache. It's happened to me. Mm-hmm. And so for me to sit here and be like, this is a bad player. And here's why. Like, I, you'll, you will not see me framing the issue that way because it's just not, that's not my approach. Mm-hmm. It's a body of work and you need to constantly update your model of that person's body of work, right? Yeah. If I see someone make the same mistake five times, it probably wasn't a stomach ache. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So what, what does it take to be in the top 100 of Magic players? And is that different from being in the top 1,000? Yeah, I think so. I think like you, there's more top 1000, you can maybe you're you don't you have a natural talent but aren't putting the reps in or you are putting the reps in but you're not that you don't have a natural talent that makes it easy so you're kind of so maybe you're struggling whereas again, I think those top 100 players they have both a natural knack for things and they're kind of and they're, they're putting in at least enough work to to know what's important at the, in this moment in time when it comes to metagames, when it comes to limited formats, whatever. Um, yeah, I think there's a, I think that there's, there's a, there's a difference now. It's, you know, it's, it's definitely shades of gray. I mean, mm-hmm. and you may, you might take a break for two years. And now all of a sudden you you are a top 1000 player. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly, you know, I, I, there's no chance I've been a top 100 player my entire career, even, even if I've been in there for spots. So, yeah, I think you, you got to have both. You got to be you. You have to have a really, really high ceiling on what you're capable of doing. So that's like how much information am I able to process about a Magic game state consistently over turn after turn, game after game? 
that's well it's gonna be different for me than it is for you and mm-hmm. not um, again you know i don't i've never seen you play but it's just it, we're different it's gonna be different for the two of us how much information am i able to process what how what am i able to do with that information so so churning that through my mind and coming up with the right play to make in this situation how consistent am i doing that part of that is just my natural again my natural that information processing what comes easy to me oh i i see the patterns between these things so that's how my brain works okay fine but i'm i'm also am i putting my brain in those situations over and over again to kind of sharpen that edge to get to that top 100 it's you got to be sharp so i think that's kind of you know there's a million different analogies you could use yeah but you got to have that kind of you got to have that hardware and you got to be sharpening the edge of that is intellectual horsepower related to intuition because i often hear about I often hear statements, and maybe this is also a mainstream statement that's false, but like what separates PT level players from grinders is that grinders put in lots of reps, but PT players maybe are a little bit better at thinking on the fly or actually adapting based on potentially having uh, faster or stronger intellectual horsepower. Like, do you, is there any is there any yeah. credence to that that argument? Yeah, and I mentioned intellectual horsepower earlier, but I want to I should I want to kind of generalize that or mm-hmm. kind of you know let's let's actually complicate that a little bit because it's more it's not I'm not talking about like some narrow some IQ or like who you know there's no it's like how many smart. things can you process and how yeah that's part of it but you also so you heard me say that but you also heard me say in a moment in this podcast that there was a time when I was so immature and impulsive in my general disposition that I would just rush to judgment and I wouldn't stop and think about it a second time. Well, that, um, that's not, it's not like now all of a sudden I got, I have more brain cells or something. That's actually just a different aspect of my personality, my approach, my disposition, my level of maturity. And again, I don't think it's all learned. I think that, I mean, there's part of it that's just like, you know, the, my maturing process, literally like I was a late bloomer in terms of my, my focus and patience and that sort of thing. And I have what I have now, I didn't have 15 years ago. So again, I, I don't want to narrow it so much that it starts to sound like I, I don't think about intelligence or aptitude in such narrow terms. It's a bunch of different stuff going on, mm-hmm. but there's still, a, there's still a part of it that comes easily to me and naturally. And there's a part of it I got to work on. And it's both those things in concert. If I'm a top 100 player. Got it. So what are the most misunderstood things about magic in general? Are, are there things that you have conviction or beliefs on that maybe maybe you think that 9 out of 10 other people don't believe, but maybe something that you hold on to that you do believe to be correct? No, I mean, I've written in the past about... Well, I'll just say what came to mind when you asked that question. Sure. You know, talking about follow with your career path or with what you, what you spend your time on you know, should you try to make a career out of what you're passionate about? One thing I, I, I think I believe that it's a little bit, it's not a majority opinion, I don't think, is that actually like what you're, what you're good at makes a better job than what you're passionate about. And what you're passionate about makes a great hobby. And that sometimes trying to turn your hobby into a job can set you back in terms of your total overall level of happiness, level of engagement with your work, with what you do for fun. I also don't doubt that different people may genuinely just feel differently about this. But for me, and what I recommend to people just in case they think they're wired the way I'm wired, I actually kind of have really enjoyed having these hobbies and not having to place the kind of life or death 
significance that financial issues have in our society. You're trying to earn that paycheck. Mm-hmm. It does matter. I mean, it really matters. And to, for me to try to, like, if I got to win a tournament to get that paycheck, something happens in that exchange that, for me, it's not positive. Um, whereas <laughs> that's very different than the, I think the common popular wisdom on that topic is, well, wouldn't it be awesome if I could just play Moto all day or Magic Arena and met, that was my job and I, and I, had, I made enough to, you know, to get by or whatever? I don't know. For me, that it, it's kind of... Is this a skin in the game argument or is it, am I misunderstanding? It's like, you know, you, you, you have to put yourself like out there and that has to be like your main source of earning or something for you to really uh, excel at it. Or am I misinterpreting? No, no. So my point, that's not quite it. My point is more that people view if I could do my hobby Mm -hmm. as a job, that would be a win win. Because I'd be doing my job and I'd be I'd be doing what I like and I'd be oh paid you're for saying it. it's okay to have that separation and you maybe you it should. might actually yeah it might actually not be a win win it might be a lose lose where now my hobby starts to feel like work mm-hmm. and I'm not maybe advancing as much as I could at work or earning as much because my hobby may not be valued as much as the thing that I'm good at and obviously like for me it's kind of easy for me to say because I just like. I like being a lawyer too, mm-hmm. and being a lawyer is happens to be more lucrative than being a magic player. So for me, it's like this is I'm speaking definitely from a position of privilege, mm-hmm. having multiple things that I like to do that sort of come naturally to me. But I just think in general, there's a conventional wisdom like, wouldn't it be great if I could turn my hobby into a job? And I just I I've cautioned people over the years, written in articles and and elsewhere, that maybe it's actually better to figure out, well, how can I add value in a way that's going to make the folks I work with feel like I'm really valued at work and then have my hobby be something else that I do for fun. And so anyway, so like when I set out to make a YouTube video, I like that it doesn't, if it doesn't do well, if it doesn't generate a bunch of revenue for me, that's okay. Then, I don't know, it takes a lot of pressure off of this hobby. And so it still feels, it still feels fun to me. And that's part of why it still feels fun, I think. Yeah. Are there other things about magic that you feel like are generally misunderstood? Maybe about the game itself. Um, you know, there's a lot. I'm just, I'm trying to... I know, it's like, where does one start, right? Because you, ha- you had touched on something uh, previously, which is kind of like, there's a very mainstream thought that like metagames are solved ASAP right away. Like they were solved yesterday. But then you were saying how... Even at PTs, like sometimes breakout decks still do happen in 2019 or 2020. I'm thinking about things like that. Are there things about magic you yeah. think that are truisms that may not be truisms? Yeah, one. I mean, one that came up. One that came up for me not too long ago in in kind of mentoring a mentoring a newer player. There's there's sometimes a conventional wisdom that my time is better spent like mastering one format of magic as opposed to trying trying multiple formats. And I actually I believe in a more well-rounded approach is going to serve you better first of all because you can't control the format of every tournament you might want to play in you can't control the the way the wind's blowing in terms of which formats become more popular than others so i think that like it actually it's good to try different things and it's going to keep things interesting and prevent burnout so i advised a player that i was talking to that just like you know maybe actually once you feel like you're getting experiencing a little bit of burnout with that one format that you're trying your hardest to be the best at, maybe it's time to pick up a new format, maybe limited, 
maybe standard if you're not a standard player, maybe you know legacy if you've never played that before, whatever. Pick up something new, and I think that like the skills, the muscles in Magic that matter are things that are relevant in every format. And there's the specialized knowledge. It's there, you know. There's something to be said for becoming the the you know the modern expert or whatever. There's something to be said for that. But I actually would coach players towards a more well-rounded approach that gets them excited about new things. When you're in a space that's unfamiliar to you, you're gonna you learn more. You learn more in your first game of standard about standard than you learn about legacy in your thousandth game of legacy. So I think if your goal is learning, it actually pays you to kind of to poke around with different stuff. So that's just an example that came up recently in a conversation I had with a, with a younger player. That's really, that's really awesome. There's another thing I want to ask you about your advanced players art videos. How do you, how do you come up with these topics? Like what is your creative process for coming up with the content? Yeah, I actually start with kind of just consuming event coverage and, you know, so, I mean, some of my videos are literally just like, you know, here's a match I saw that was interesting. So that, you know, those, that springs to mind when I'm watching that match. But even otherwise, I'm playing Magic, I'm consuming that, I'm watching, and I'm thinking, like, what was something interesting that came up? If I, if someone was sitting next to me, what would I be coaching them through? So I really just try to have a coach's mindset when mm-hmm. I'm watching, when I'm playing now. And that tells me, okay, if there's a lesson in here in what I'm seeing if I'm proud of a play I made, if I think a play I saw was really impressive or not so impressive, those are teachable moments. So my process is trying to have, you know, one eye open for those teachable moments and then I can grab one of those and, okay, now I can go basically do the lesson, so to speak, on the channel. Do you think your your process or how you do things has changed? I'm not talking from a technical sense, like oh, you know how you edit your videos, but in terms of the content itself, how how has it been now doing maybe your 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 twentieth video versus the first video that you did? Yeah, it's one of those. You know, I just was I actually was just talking about your first game of something new, your first your first couple of reps of something new. You, you tend to be like, wow, there's so much explorable space here. I can just learn in every direction. Now, like, so the ideas for videos would just like spring into mind and they would kind of just like barge through the door, so to speak, and they'd be obvious to me. And now that I've got a lot of those videos under my belt, like the low hanging fruit to some extent is gone. And now, uh, so now my videos are a little bit more often. They're like, oh, here's a really interesting game because it's going to present some new novel stuff and less about the fundamentals of this or that because a lot of that, or some of that I covered, some of the stuff that I feel like I've got a lot to say on that. Well, I've said it. So I think there's, you know, so I've had a little bit of writer's block recently, actually. I didn't didn't make a video for a couple of weeks and just felt, at moments in that, I felt like I cannot think of one idea that would make a good video. I can think of five ideas that would make a mediocre video. I can't think of one idea that would make a good video. Mm-hmm. So then, then I've said, said to myself, to get myself out of that, let me go watch the coverage of, let's say, the World Championship or the SCG Players Tour or whatever. Mm-hmm. Let me get out of that and see. Maybe I can go find something. 
but it's been that's a different process than what it was right at the, right out of the gate. It was like, oh well, there's not enough hours in the day to record all this. <laughs> it's uh, like I want, there's so much I want to say. So it sounds like at the very beginning, there like you had a very targeted list of things you wanted to get off your chest, as it were, like to like, okay, I want to talk about these things. And now it's kind of like you're you're having to maybe explore or get uh, or get rid of writer's block by like actually going out for a walk and see what's out there, kind of thing, right? Yeah, and it's not, and you know, you say you got like a list of ideas, so to speak, and not even hypothetical, like a literal list of kind of things I jotted down, right? Yeah. You know, and yeah, that the, the what, what I would describe as the low hanging fruit, the stuff that for me would easily make kind of a natural video. I, I, okay, this is going to be easy to kind of give a lesson on. Yeah, some of that stuff's gone. Um, but I think, you know, I just need to get back in the mindset of, of opening up my mind, not focusing so much on the list and what's there, but, think, you know, going back to square one, maybe deleting that file, starting a new one, mm-hmm. more stuff's going to come to me. I don't, I don't plan on stopping making these videos, but, you know, it's a little bit different at, right out of the gate versus once you're later in the game, coming up with those fresh ideas that still feel fresh, but you still have something interesting to say about them. Is there anything that you wouldn't mind sharing about maybe some future ways that these videos could go like maybe things that you have not had a chance to to release yet even sure yeah i've got so on my list i've got a couple things i've got some um imp- really important conceptual theory concepts that i think deserve an unpacking that i haven't wanted to climb that mountain yet so that's like a like example is like doing a video on first mover advantage or you know spots where like the timing of things of who does something for who moves for who blinks first, mm-hmm. those kinds of situations that come up and going through that. I think there's a lot there, but that, so that's one that's on my back burner. Once, once I see something that really resonates with that or, or once some of that crystallizes a little bit more, I'll, I'll make a video on that. And that's, you know, stuff like if you, someone, if your opponent's at two and you have a burn spell, but you're ahead on board, you should just wait until your opponent does something to not be, to, you know, to, to break that up because, if they have like a life gain spell, you can just kill them in response. Like that sort of thing. So anyway, something technical. And then there's some stuff that's not not so theoretical or technical. I want to go back and look at some of the great plays and moments in Magic's past. So not what happened last week, but like, you know, when Samuele Estrati bluffed Tom Martell in like 2011 or whatever it was. Like, let's cover that. Right. And that could be really cool. So reaching into the vault, I want to do a couple of those videos. I think the Estrati bluff would be a good one. Um, cause right now, you, you know, you can, you can like find that clip, but there's not a breakdown. Why is it such a good play? And then there's a, a lot of plays like that. Um, I could do the Brian Davis, Bob Marr match, which I've watched a hundred times. I could probably do that one without even loading up the video. I could probably do that one cause mm-hmm. I've seen it so many times and talk about why the plays and strategies were brilliant or not so, or boneheaded and everything in between. Um, so stuff, stuff like that. And, uh, you know, trying to figure out, again, what's interesting? What is something that I have a perspective to add? Is there a framing that makes it feel natural, such as, okay, this just came up in an event, or here's a video, come check it out. That feels natural, easy to get into, versus me coming up with the lesson plan from the chalkboard, which is mm-hmm. always going to feel a little bit stiff. Those are the kinds of things I'm thinking about. I, I think it, part of the fun of creating content is that you're trying to do something that others have not done in exactly the same way. I mean, it could be your video series, it could be this podcast, but 
I do wonder, and I wonder if you've wondered about this, like why are there not more people doing this sort of deep dive content in Magic? Yeah, and that's I mean that's the reason that's the reason why I started doing it is I noticed there was just a huge gap mm-hmm. in what other folks are doing. There's just not available, um, like it is for other strategic games. I mean, there you know you can watch go watch a video about I don't know how to win at Scrabble. I mean, I'm sure like that stuff ten, tends to be easy to find. Um, maybe because those games are obviously like those are games that the household name type of games, chess, Scrabble, whatever. Like there's more people playing those games, so there's more different kinds of approaches, but also. Yeah, magic is so complex. People, I think with the with the deep strategy stuff, people sometimes don't know where to start, and they feel like, well, if I gotta write the whole book, I don't know where to start. And you know, Patrick Chapin did it with his, I thought his his magic book is really good actually. But um, you know, most folks don't want to write the whole book, so they don't know kind of don't know where to start. So I and I've I've felt some of the challenges like I just talked about, where, where some of these topics are complex. Some of it is hard to cover. In a, in a digestible chunk, whether it's 10 minutes, 20 minutes, or 60 minutes, it's hard to cover some of these issues. So it's not easy to do, and I think that's why you, you that's why you don't see it a lot. It's actually pretty hard to do in a way that's both interesting and useful. And, and if I may, uh, maybe I'll offer one, uh, one theory about this too. My, my theory is that because magic is so complex that there are literally millions and billions of possible game state situations. Like you knowing that there was a brilliant bluff being made at this point in Pro Tour Amonkhet doesn't necessarily help you. This is maybe, maybe this is almost a contrarian position, but like almost doesn't help you uh, in your own game, right? Because it, it, there's one aspect of being that. The other aspect is like you don't, most players probably don't even have that baseline to be able to take advantage of these advanced strategic concepts because they're not, they're not there yet. They're still trying to, uh, you know, climb other smaller mountains first. Yeah, you know, no, it's a good point. I I definitely spent some time wondering in the mindset of is this going to be useful, right? What what's too much and what's and what's not enough? Is it too much complexity? Is it not enough? Because not enough complexity, you turn it off. You go watch something else that's yeah. more interesting. Too much complexity, you don't even know what's going on. Let alone, is it useful? Is it actionable? Is the situation going to come up for me? It's tough, and I think you're absolutely right to point out that's another. But you know, these are hurt. These are speed bumps. They're not. They're not brick walls. As far as you know, making content. I think you watch some of my videos. There's something in each video for someone to take away and say, "Okay, I now understand a little bit better how high level magic works." And look, if the situations weren't similar, then there wouldn't be such a thing as a top 100 or top 10. You know, Paulo Vitor Domodorosa, he wouldn't exist. If the situations were so disparate that you know that we just couldn't compare them, we're like no, like this is someone who's capable of learning. So, anyways, the top players are learning from situations they encounter. I promise you, and I'm trying to bring those situations to your YouTube screen and say, here's a situation you can learn from. Here's how to do it. So now the way I'm thinking about it is something you can always grab that. Okay, the way Matt unpacked that, I can go unpack something else. I can go look at a game I just played, think about that key turn, and talk. Okay, when 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 Matt said like, oh well, this was risky, because for this reason, then okay, that might apply here too. I mean, so I think you know, it it can feel daunting, and that's why a lot of people aren't trying it. But I try not to let it be overwhelming. Right. I I think what's good about some of the videos I've seen of yours is that 
you do start up from the the bottom of the mountain and you try to build it up like you try to use visuals and and things to make sure that the the viewer is is following along and it's okay if someone if it's already too simple for some people uh you know they'll just skip it that's fine but then you you do build up your argument in a way that uh, it is relatively coherent at least even for someone who's like a very low level player like me like i'm i'm getting it i'm getting that every every step so i i think my question here is um, how much outlining do you do? Because it does seem like your videos have a lot more structure than a lot of the videos or even articles that I've read. Yeah, I'm lucky. Like I, ha I have a, I have like one of my natural abilities is when it comes to writing and persuading people and teaching, like I do have a pretty natural, I think, knack for kind of the organization part of it. And so like I, I will write articles that on Channel Fireball, my articles come out like almost every week, reacting to something, this or that. Sometimes it's the sick of it, which is the bigger kind of article. Sometimes it's a shorter form. Hey, there's this new thing. Let's talk about it. Or I did a, a review of world's coverage. Yep. And I don't do a bunch of drafts. I don't I don't outline. I don't, I like Sometimes I hand in my first draft. And so I just have like in my mind an ability to kind of naturally kind of organize things. And that's been, that's been super helpful because I can't, I don't have time. I barely have enough time to edit these things. And that's why you're not going to see a video from me every week. Mm -hmm. Not, it's not possible. It takes too long. If I started doing outline number one, draft one, you know, a first video shoot, then I reshoot it. Like I just, it, I don't have time for it. It wouldn't happen. So I got to just bootstrap it. I'm mostly going by the seat of my pants and to the extent that I prepare some visuals or I do like a little stop and go with the video, then that forces its own kind of outline onto it, but I'm not doing a separate outline. So I just try to kind of follow the natural structure of what I'm doing and, and let it go where it needs to go. But I have to just rely on judgment because I don't have time to do it in a more deliberate way. Got it. Got it. And let's talk about your voice a little bit. You know, I, I've had a pretty good sense of it so far just in talking to you but can you talk about because everybody has personas so does matt sperling in these articles and these videos and on twitter is that the same matt sperling who is on offline i mean in some ways yes in some ways definite no i mean i think uh, with, with the concept of personas and at work i go to work um you know a corporate lawyer and that means certain things as far as you know how, that's different than what you know. How what does it mean to you, though? What does that mean to you? Yeah, it means like actually caring about um, the reputation of the legal team and the legal function, and it's just it's a very different kind of role than I mean. There's literally like there's professional responsibility where you you right. have to conduct yourself differently in some contexts. There's rules for how you conduct yourself. I mean, this is like this is super like. A little bit arcane, but if you think about, there's a rule of professional conduct that the California State Bar that you know I can't be misleading people and you know doing things in order to get an upper hand in negotiation that aren't that aren't above board. Like, and you kind of just have to have this approach where if you if you have a reputation as someone who cuts corners, this is not going to work. Mm -hmm. So you end up comporting yourself in a way, and also like you care about the company culture, mm -hmm. and co corporate culture is very different than a casual culture where it, it means like respect and professionalism has to show up front and center, and it's not, it doesn't work that way when you go to the Magic Tournament. Obviously, like I mean, I certainly hope people show up with respect and professionalism at a Magic Tournament, but that's always going to be different than a corporate environment. So for me, yeah, I have a different persona and different areas that I walk in, but I think it's natural because I think you do want to think about 
the, the different incentives that are in play in different environments, the different the what people are looking to you for on YouTube, my video series, people are looking to me for something different than what they're looking for in the sick of it article versus what they're looking for in a meeting at work. So I don't have a problem with the fact that you're going to see different people. There's not that much humor in the in the in the magic videos, right? In these magic gathering for advanced players, mm-hmm. not that much humor. And I'm I don't think it's fake, and I don't think it's fake when I'm being humorous. I think it's just different, and there's a time and a place for 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 behaving different ways. And so I I view it as yes, it, that's real, but I don't think the masks we wear are something to feel guilty over or wring our hands over. I think it's just like there's a time and a place for different types of conduct. Yeah, I mean, there's just different sides of you, right? They're all they're all sides of you. Yeah, definitely, and you know, and again, if you want. If you're someone that's trying to show up and gain the respect of other people, you want people to feel like you're useful in terms of what you're doing. Like what you're doing is useful at work, online, whatever. It's interesting. That's going to mean something different at work than what it means, you know, at the bar after work, getting a drink or whatever. So I think like um, the different personas we bring are just a natural part of figuring all that out. Yeah, absolutely. And you've been a magic player longer than you've been a lawyer. So how how does one list of skill sets contribute to the other? Like, like has being a magic player helped you in terms of being a lawyer or vice versa? I mean, yeah, definitely. If we think about all the time I've spent writing about magic. Well, I mean, writing is a really important skill mm-hmm. in law. And whether you're writing an email to persuade your business team about the risks about something you there's a breakdown to what you're doing okay is this readable is it persuasive like that's going to say that's going to also apply to a magic article i'm writing about the reserve list or whatever magic topic you think of so definitely there's a skill set with persuasion with presentation with critical thinking so critical thinking in magic takes a lot of different forms but you know are you someone who's just going to play the deck that did well last week and to show up with that that's going to limit your ceiling as a player versus someone who can actually think critically about what's the next evolution of this. So does that show up directly in, no, not directly in legal work, but this is the mental exercise of figuring out these puzzles, figuring out what people are going to do because that, that metagame exercise, what's the, what's the good deck this week based on what was played last week? Well, this is another video that I've been meaning to make, but I'll tease it. You know, you don't want to play last week's deck. You want to play this week's deck. So that involves thinking about what other people are going to do in reaction. This is nothing new, but there's a lot lot to it. So there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Well, we show up to work as a lawyer and guess what? You got to predict what people are going to do because that impacts what you're advising folks on. You know, whether you're talking about a risk situation, negotiation, whatever, the legal work that you do involves other people. And so, and I think magic, one of the great things about magic is yes, it's this game, but you're not playing against the computer, you're playing against another person, you're trying to predict what they'll do, you're trying to outplay them, you you know, so I think it definitely shows up, and um, although it's not a super straight line how these things connect, I think spending your time with other smart people on really complicated problems, also just you, the teamwork that you learn in that is huge. How do I communicate? How do I make a spreadsheet with data about what matchups we're playing? How do I make that useful? Well, obviously that could be relevant at work. So there's a ton of that stuff. What are your future looking goals? Like, do you have specific goals as it relates to your career or magic or, or both in the coming one to three years? Yeah, I, I, I said in my Rivals League preview article, and believe me, I don't blame you for not having looked at 
every word I've ever written on this topic. <laughs> it was kind of just an article summarizing, here's yeah, how the rules work. Yeah. <laughs> it was just an article summarizing, here's how the rules of the Rivals League work. And in that article, I said my goal was for this year to make it back to Rivals. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I would like to make it to MPL and get promoted to that league. But making it back to Rivals would be great because that would mean I get to keep doing what I'm doing right now, which I really like. And, it's, and it's, it's also possible that, you know, the Magic Pro League would be too much. But, you know, I'll take that risk if I get there. But I, so my goal was to get back to Rivals. So we'll see how, we'll see how that goes. Yeah. Um, and then professionally, I just had this conversation with somebody today, actually. It was in, I went and got lunch with somebody. So I'm happy to talk about it again here because uh, it's an interesting topic. What's my goal is when you set out with your career, some people, their goal, you know, get a certain amount of money in the bank, get a certain title or certain... For me, like actually, my goal is to work, have the folks I work with respect me and value my work so much that for the rest of my life, I'm always gonna have a job somewhere because these folks know Matt's a person that just is like a all-star contributor, um, an amazing lawyer. So like that's my goal is to have people you know, and I've been lucky to work with folks that are just like great to work with and and so I'm happy where I'm at but my goal is to have them feeling that way too that if the next thing has to come along for whatever reason you know those folks feel fully confident in in recommending me for that or hiring me at the next place they go and that's so that's my goal professionally that's a great goal like basically being known as a someone who can get it done right yeah someone you want on your team um if you have that reputation then you're kind of immune to the comings and goings of this one job you're sitting in because you can get another one because people know how valued. It is. So that's you know, that's something that that I aspire to. I mean, to use an imperfect analogy, it's almost like being in the law hall of fame, where it's like, okay, you know, this person is like a, a go-to person who can get it done. Um, his or her body of work is is solid, and like you're always going to think of that person when you need something to get done or or some result to be achieved, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, for sure. It's that reputation. You have a reputation as being like world. I said earlier this podcast, world class, being a world class player, world class is something. It means like your skill set can't be easily, you know, uh, replaced located. or duplicated. Yeah. Yeah, it can't be duplicated easily. It can't be located in someone else at with easily with little with little time expended. Like that's the reputation you want it means you're distinguishing yourself from others and these are things that drive competitive minded people like myself that like you do want to stand out a little bit if you didn't then that you wouldn't have that competitive fire that edge awesome well matt thank you so much today for your time and i certainly feel like i have a little bit of a better understanding as to uh who you are and i hope you enjoyed this conversation as well and my persistent non non-stop questioning no, this was great. Um, you know, I guess, I don't know if that makes me a narcissist that I like the sound of my own voice for however long we've been talking. But no, this is great. You know, you asked a lot of great questions and let me talk about things that I'm passionate about, how they how they intersect and overlap. So I appreciate you having me on. Any Anytime, happy to, happy to chat. Thank you so much. And I hope you have a, a good rest of the day. You too. Thank you for listening to this episode of Humans and Magic. To get more information about the show and to join the mailing list, please visit humansandmagic.com. And don't forget, the Humans and Magic book is now available on Amazon for both paperback and Kindle. We'll see you next time.